Have you ever read a book and then gone to see the movie? And as you're walking out, were you a little bit disappointed because the movie wasn't as good as the book? You're like, you know, they changed parts or they left out some really important things. Well, today as we turn in our Bible to Luke chapter 12, we're about halfway through the book, the gospel called Luke. It's part of the bigger book called the Bible. And as we've been looking at who Jesus is according to this book, the manuscript called the Bible, maybe you've noticed that some of what you've heard in the world about God or about God's word is a little bit different than the book called the Bible. We live in a world where society likes to rewrite the script. They say, well, we like these parts, so we'll keep that. But these are, these are other parts that, that we don't really like, so they cut them out or they, they change things or leave out some really important parts. Um, the world wants a watered-down Jesus, one who's there to entertain us, one who's there to make us feel good. Uh, we don't want uh, a Jesus that, that has judgment. And so we, we choose parts of the Bible. And, and, and we go along sometimes as believers with the world, playing uh, along with the rewritten script. But as we turn in our Bible today, what we're going to see is we can't pick and choose uh, what we want. We don't get to cut things out of the book. And God doesn't want us as believers to be those who play according to the script of the world, this watered-down script. I invite you to look with me in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, where it begins in verse 1 by telling us, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the opening scene of the story this morning is that Jesus is teaching. It's not like this morning. People aren't sitting in rows and comfortable chairs with nice air conditioning. Uh, It's chaos. There are thousands of people that are coming. They're outdoors. They're out in the sun. There are these crowds that are pushing and pressing in. They're stepping on one another. Everybody's there because they, they've heard about Jesus. They've heard or seen his power. They've been, they've been listening now for three years to Jesus' teaching. We've read how he's one who teaches with authority. They've seen power as there have been miracles, people raised from the dead, uh, lame people who have been made to walk. There have been all kinds of miracles, demons and things that have been casting out. And some in the crowd are there because they say, we need to be healed. Others want to be in the inner circle. And so they're pressing in, trying to get close to Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus turns to his inner circle, the disciples, And he says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the word Pharisee literally means the separated ones, the set-apart ones. These are uh, people who are part of the religious elite. Uh, The scribes and the Sadducees, along with the Pharisees, were the religious elite of the day. And and they were at war with Jesus. This is the circumstances that are mentioned there in Luke 12.1. If you look at the verses right before it, in Luke 11.53 through 54, it says, When Jesus left there, which you remember was the house of one of the religious leaders, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, if you were Jesus and you knew these guys were watching you, they were waiting to catch you in something you might say, would you immediately say something bad about them? Well, that's Jesus. 
He turns to his disciples and he says, watch out for them and their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We hear that word, but what does it mean? Well, in the original language, the Greek word hypocrite was used as a theatrical term. You see these masks up on the screen. These are the thespian type of mask. It's the symbol for actors, and, and that's what it was. A, a hypocrite was an actor. They were a person who would play a part. They didn't have the technology we do today where they had the elaborate makeup or digitizing they could do to to create a character. So what they did is they got masks like these. And they would have a smiling mask that they would hold up. And a hypocrite was an actor that everybody knew was hiding behind a mask and playing a part. And if they wanted you to laugh or they were telling a happy story, they'd hold up a smiling mask. If it was sad or a solemn scene, they would hold up the frowning mask. We, we say hypocrites are two-faced, and this is where it comes from, because depending upon the scenario they were playing, they would change the mask they were hiding behind. Now, it was originally used, as I said, of an actor, but we have come to use the word hypocrite in our day in a negative way, because a hypocrite is a person who treats the world as a stage, but we're not paying for a performance to watch a hypocrite. Instead, we know this is a person deceiving us. They're playing a part. They're hiding who they really are. And in terms of the religious leaders, when Jesus says they're hypocrites, he says they're playing the part of looking more holy or sacrificial than they are in the things that they were doing. There's a a story told about the king of Spain. And way back at the turn of one of the ancient centuries, he went to visit a, a small village. Now, the people in this community were excited. The king or queen had never come to their small town. They were kind of a rural, off-the-beaten-path, poor community. And so when they heard the king was coming, they thought, how can we honor him? We don't have a lot to give, but this, this was a region known for the wine they produced. And so the people of that community got together and they said, this is what we're going to do. We all have uh, similar fields and vintages and things, so each one of us will bring a container of our best wine, and we're going to pour it into a barrel. We're going to have a community barrel where we each contribute a container. And when the king comes, we're going to give this gift of the wine to the king. It's going to be the best wine he's ever had. And so the day came, the king was coming, uh, a barrel was brought to the town square, and every farmer and family came with their, with their container, and they, they smiled at everybody as they were pouring it through the opening in the top of the barrel. And then when the king came, they they made all these speeches about how much they loved the king and how they wanted to honor him. So they told the story of how they had all brought their best vintage and they had poured it into this barrel and they were going to gift it to the king. But before he took it with them, they gave him a silver cup and they said, King, we want you to draw a cup from the wine uh, barrel and enjoy it. So the king, anticipating this wonderful vintage, gets a a cup full of wine, and he takes a a drink, and he suddenly looks at it. And and he's surprised because it tastes like water, and it looks like water. And as he looks down, he he sees it is water. Now, it's not that a reverse miracle had happened where wine was turned into water. You see, what happened is that uh, each of the the villagers thought, with so much great wine that's going into this barrel, I I can save my own wine by just pouring in a cup of water. And nobody's going to notice. But what happened is that each of them did that. And because of that, the deception as they went through the motions where they looked like honoring the king was discovered. 
Just think about your own life. Have you ever done anything like that with God? If you say, God, I love you, I want to honor you, I want to give to you, I want to sacrifice, and, and what you were doing was simply going through the motions and, and not really following through. Well, that was the Pharisees. That was the religious leaders of the day. It's why in another passage in Matthew fifteen seven through 8, Jesus said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Jesus says, not only is your heart's hardened. Not only do you have this disease, he says, but you're in danger of spreading this disease as the religious leaders to others. Jesus describes this as being like leaven that's in dough. Now, those that Jesus were, was speaking to in the original audience understood fully this picture. They lived in a day where they baked bread on an almost daily basis. And if you've ever made bread yourself, you know that there's a, a leaven process where you, you will add yeast to the dough if you want it to rise. And, and in the, as Jesus uses this image of leaven, not only did they have experience with it, but they understood his meaning. Because the, the Jewish people knew that Exodus uh, 18, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12 and later in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5 says that leaven is a symbol of evil. It's a picture of sin. And what he says is, uh, this is, this is what your hypocrisy is. Um, he says, you know, as you put a little leaven in the dough, it, it infects and leavens the whole thing. Uh, I've been told uh, from what I've read that, that leaven is a yeast. It's a fungus. And, and what you do is when you put it in, it, it breaks down the starch into a simple sugar that then ferments and it releases CO2, this gas that causes the dough to expand. Makes you kind of want to go out and get some, some gassy bread right now, doesn't it? You know? But the picture that Jesus gives to them is he says, think about what this is. This, this sin, this hypocrisy is like leaven. Because a little bit of it is hidden at first, but it infects the whole person. And as, as it takes over, as it begins to be like pride that puffs the person up as yeast does to dough. You know, as you think in terms of hypocrisy, it's in every area of society, isn't it? I mean, we see hypocrites everywhere. But the word hypocrite is often applied to Christians. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people uh, when they find out that I'm a pastor, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I don't go to church because, you know, it's full of hypocrites. And, and the fleshly, sinful side of me always wants to respond, well, we've got room for one more, so please, <laughs> please join us. But I don't do that. Instead, what I do is I say, uh, I wonder, have you ever had an apple that, you know, was this, this bright red, firm-looking apple, and you were just looking forward to biting into it? And I said, as you, you bit into that apple, you suddenly went, oh, it's, it's mushy, it's gross. Maybe there was a, a bug in it. And I said, if, if that's ever happened to you with an apple or some other kind of fruit, did you say, I'm never going to eat another apple or another piece of fruit again? If somebody were to come and, and put a pie in front of you, an apple pie, would you say, oh, no, I've, I've sworn off all apples because they're hypocritical? <laughs> I say, no, what you do is you say, I'm going to reject the bad apple. I'm going to toss it aside, and, and next time I'm going to be a little more careful. I'm going to inspect the fruit before I bite into it. And I say, that's what you need to do with churches. That's what you need to do with Christians. There are bad apples out there. There are counterfeit Christians. There are things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ in the past that were not in line with who he is or what his book teaches. 
And so what you do is you reject the hypocrisy. You don't reject Jesus Christ. And when it comes to us as Christians, we don't get to wear that excuse where we say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. What God says is we should look at our lives and we should say, are there areas that are inconsistent? Are we being hypocrites? And if so, make the changes so that we properly represent him. And as the crowds are coming here, and as Jesus tells them, do not fall into the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he knows the danger. He says, look, I know that as men you're tempted to try to impress people here, just as the religious leaders are doing. You want to appear more holy than you are. You don't want to offend anybody by driving away crowds. And he says, I, I, I know that as you see what these religious leaders are doing, where they're at war with me, you're saying, let's, let's just kind of live and let live. Let's not poke the bear. Let's not, you know, antagonize them by, by going against them. And, and what Jesus says is, you don't need to do that. Do not be a hypocrite. And he says the same thing to us today. We live in a world where we face these same temptations, don't we? There are times we want to appear more holy than we are, to appear more spiritual than we are. There are times as Christians, we we want to hide behind a mask. We don't want people to to see uh, that we're believers, so we hide our Christianity. You know, we live in a day where it seems that everything is tolerated except Christianity. Have you noticed that? And so as Christians, when we're at work, we know that if we say we're a believer, it may mean that we're blacklisted on the promotion list in the military or at work. We know at school that saying we're going to stand for Christ can mean that we lose friends or or we lose a spot on a team or get benched. In society, there are all kinds of opportunities that as soon as you're found to be a a believer, uh, those doors are closed to you. And there's this temptation to hide our faith, which is hypocrisy. And what Jesus tells his disciples is don't do that. He says in verses 2 through 5, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And we've already talked about how fear can drive our wrong behavior. As we hide who we are, we pretend to be someone we're not. And here Jesus Jesus brings up some additional areas of fear. As I was reading this passage about hypocrisy and presenting ourselves in certain ways, I thought about social media. You know, social media is, is a place where many of us hide behind a screen on a device, right? We're able to present a picture to the world that we control. Uh, we, we can edit the shot. We can use filters. We can, we can make the storyline be something that is just in line with us. We strategically position that selfie so that nobody sees the mess that's all around us or you know you've you've taken 20 duck face shots before you get just the right one that you're gonna you're gonna post on on instagram or facebook now sometimes we go off script right the the thing that we're putting out there we really don't want everybody to see uh we 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 don't want the whole world to have that so that's why there are apps like snapchat you know how snapchat works 
It's, it's this app that's designed where you can send a text, a photo, or a video to somebody, and it advertises that in 10 seconds or less, it disappears, and it's gone. So Snapchat plays into that, that side of us that, that wants to, you know, maybe have a, a walk on the wild side or some indiscretion, and, and we don't want that to be out there. We want to hide it. There have been surveys that have been done of users of Snapchat, and they found that of the estimated 700 million snaps that are sent every single day, many of them are compromising, embarrassing, or explicit in nature. Now, what the developers have promised you is this is a platform where you can indulge in your indiscretions, and what you send out will never see the light of day again. But that's been found to not be the case because there have been forensic uh, investigations done into some of these platforms and these applications. And they found that with the right software, and if you're a savvy hacker, you can go in and retrieve photos and text and cellular data and other things that have been sent out. ABC News has reported that. Elle Magazine has. And all you have to do is, is look at the latest investigations that are ongoing where people who thought they had deleted emails or hidden pictures or scrubbed this or that are being uh, brought back to see the light of day again. You know, I've never downloaded the Snapchat app because I, I've thought, you know, if I'm worried about sending something that I want to disappear in 10 seconds, then I probably shouldn't be sending that anyway, right? Now, I don't say that because I think I'm more righteous than some of you who are now trying to delete Snapchat off your phone, right? <laughs> I say that because I'm glad that we do not have a God who said, I'm going to give you Snapchat. What he did was he sent his son, Jesus. He said, I'm not giving you something to hide your sins. I'm not giving you something to uh, make things disappear. He said, I'm sending my son to die for you, who will wash away your transgressions, who will wash away our sins through his blood. If you're somebody who's sitting here this morning worried about some secret sin you've committed seeing the light of day, let me put your mind at ease. You don't have to worry if that's going to happen because it will. You're going, well, you're not very comforting, Roger. (laughs) God already knows about every single sin you and I have ever done. There is nothing that we can do that God doesn't already know about. And so if you're somebody who's worried about hiding your sins and you're thinking, if God only knew about me, friends, he knows about you. He knows all about you. And rather than rejecting you, rather than running from you, what he has done is he sent his son to die for you and me. Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has given us a way to deal with our sins, which is through his son, Jesus. You know, so many people are saying, I'm worried about what other people think about me. I'm worried what might happen if this sin that I've committed in the dark and hidden away is found out. And what God says is, what's the worst that can happen to you? As you think about those people who have made your life maybe miserable at work or school or other places, what's the worst they can do to you? Bully you? Make your life hard for a few years. The worst they could do is maybe kill you. And you're saying, well, Roger, that's, that's kind of pretty bad. <laughs> but look at what Jesus says is bad. He says if when your life on earth is over and you end up spending eternity separated from me in a place 
called hell. Now you may be saying, wait a minute. What do you mean hell? You, you didn't put a trigger alert up on the, the screen, Roger, before you said that word hell. That's, that's a word that, that I don't like. It's a word that society says uh, that doesn't belong in the Bible. Let's just kind of cut that out. Let's remove that from the script because we want a God of love. We want a God who never judges anybody. We don't want a God who's so exclusive that he says, there are people who won't get to spend eternity with me in heaven. And so people who claim to speak for God write books that say, well, in the end, you get a second chance. This book, written by the original author, says in Hebrews, it's appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. There's not a second chance on the other side of the grave. We, we say, but I don't, I don't want a God who's so exclusive that, that he doesn't allow all roads to lead to heaven. Well, again, we don't get to write the script we want. Jesus Christ said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the original author's original manuscript. And if you say, well, Roger... <laughs> I don't agree with that. It was just kind of written by men and not everything in there is right. And so, you know, there are parts I accept, but there are others that I don't. I want you to imagine this. So you're going to gather together all of your friends who think the same way you do. And you're going to go up and you're going to get to the top of, say, a 50 or 60 story tall building. And you all all go up to the rooftop and you walk out on the roof and you go over to the edge and you look over at the edge and you say, you know what? I don't like this old school idea of gravity. Gravity's limiting my freedom. It's something I don't like, so, so I don't believe in gravity. Do you agree with me? We agree. We, we all vote that gravity doesn't exist. Great. It doesn't matter how sincere you are in your beliefs. It doesn't matter how many people agree with you in your beliefs. If you step off the edge of that building, you will find out the truth that gravity exists. And when you finally stop going down, you will in all likelihood meet your maker. And we can look at a passage like this where Jesus talks about how some will be separated from him for all eternity in a place called hell, and we can say, I don't like that. I'm going to cut that out of my Bible. But we don't get to rewrite the story, men and women. This is not a movie made for our entertainment. This is a book given for our guidance. It's a book pointing us to the truth of who God is and who his son is and what he did for us. And what Jesus says in verse 5 is, you need to fear God. Now, that's another word we don't really like, is it? Fear God. Why, why would you fear God? We want a God of love. Roger, didn't you tell us a few weeks ago when we looked at how to pray that, that God says, call us Abba, Father, Daddy, that we're to crawl up in his lap and he wants us to tell about our day and things? Do we, do we have a God who is, who is a, a, a God of love, who's our daddy, or do we have a God who we fear? Well, see, part of the problem is our definition of the word fear. The word fear is the Greek word phobeo. And we get our English word phobia from it. And so we think in terms of phobia as being something bad, right? Some of you have, have a fear of spiders, arachnophobia. And when you see a, 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 a spider, you don't go, wow, 
That's an amazing creation. Let me look at that web that it's spin. Oh, look at how it's coming. You, you start throwing things at it, and you run screaming from the room like a little schoolgirl. And I'm just talking about the men, right? <laughs> and maybe you, you, you have a fear of heights, arachrophobia, uh, acrobats, acrophobia. So you come to this edge. When I was telling that story a moment ago about the building, you were in a cold sweat grabbing the seat. You're going, I would never get up on the top of a tall building. And as you come to the edge, you don't go, wow, look at that beautiful, I could see forever. You're plastered against a wall somewhere. You're grabbing on. Just even the thought of it is fearful. And when you hear we're to fear God, you think I'm supposed to fear God? I'm supposed to run from him? The word means reverence. The word means awe. It's a word that tells us to recognize who God is. See, we don't like the word fear God because we say it doesn't fit the script. The, the movie we've made says God's our buddy. God's our cosmic bellhop. I ring the bell and, and he comes running and says, what's your wish? What can I give you today that you're asking for? We, we, we cut out the parts of the Bible that we don't want. But as you go through and read the Bible, have you ever seen what happens whenever God shows up in the scriptures? It says there are earthquakes. There are mountains that are leveled. There's a consuming fire that goes before him. There's just awesome. Just he is God. His power is unmatched. People tremble in his presence. They fall on their face in front of him. He is God and there is no equal. And if you're sitting here saying, well, I don't like seeing God that way. What kind of God do you want? Do you want a weak, mamby-pamby God? Do you, do you want a kind of God that's just kind of this, you know, 60-pound effeminate, you know, ooh, he's, you know, the pictures of Jesus we see in Sunday school. Oh, I mean, is that the God you want? It's not the God I want. Because when, when a, a God like that goes before an enemy like Satan, he'll get squashed. But when we recognize who God is, when we see him as holy and powerful in this consuming presence, we see that when Satan rebels against him, as he led a rebellion in heaven against God, what happened? God threw Satan and a third of the rebellious angels out of heaven. It was over like that. When, when Satan goes against God at the cross and he says, I'm going to kill you, he thought he won. But then three days later, Jesus came out alive and he saw that God had conquered sin, death, and Satan. I want a God who is powerful. I want a God who can defeat our enemies. And yes, I want a God of love. And God is a God of love. He proved that at the cross because John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He said, I love you, not this much or this much. He spread his arms wide and he died for us. He is a God of love. But he is also a holy God and a just God. And one, the scriptures say that sin cannot reside in his presence. Friends, you don't get to pick and choose the parts of the story you want. As we look at the story of who God is, it all comes together in an amazing way. As, as we're reading about Jesus telling us to fear God and he's talking about hell, it doesn't mean God doesn't love us. Look at what Jesus says in Luke twelve six. 
Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times I'm reading through the Bible and I go, what? What just happened? Jesus is talking about fear and hell and he goes, squirrel, or better yet, sparrow, right? And you're going, what's he doing? Well, again, the first century audience understood exactly what Jesus was doing. He's talking about sin. He's talking about separation from God because of our sin. And they all know the Levitical law. They know that when you sin, there had to be a blood offering. There had to be a sacrifice brought to the temple. You had to bring an animal whose blood would be spilt on your behalf. Hebrews says there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And, and people, there were, there were uh, sacrifices required for different sins. And people knew, well, if, if I committed this, I need to bring a very expensive offering like a lamb or a goat. But if you were impoverished, if you were too poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, God wasn't this slave master who said, I want you to ruin everything in your future to cover this sin out of love for them. He said, you can bring birds. Sparrows were so cheap, you could buy two for less than a penny. And if you bought two sets of them, they threw in a fifth one for free because they were so plentiful and and that cheap. And the point Jesus is making is that if God knows about even the least, most insignificant throwaway creature you can think of in this world, he says, I know about you. Jesus makes that clear as he goes on and says in verse 7, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You know, this morning as you got ready, as you were taking a shower or brushing your hair, you probably can't even think about how many hairs you left in the drainer in your hairbrush, right? Some of you are saying, well, yeah, I can. Um, but, but God knows He knows you and me so intimately. He says, I know even that detail, that insignificant detail about you. And as Jesus is talking about his love for us, don't forget where he's going. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's traveling to Jerusalem where he knows, I am going there to die on a cross. I'm going there not to hide your sins, but to die for your sins to give my life so that you can have the gift of eternal life. But that gift is only good if you receive the payment in your place. That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 8 through 10. It says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven against him. If you look at verses 11 through 12 here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He says that when you are taken before the authorities and and you're fearful for the defense you're going to make, he says the Holy Spirit will guide you. God will tell you what to say. As a Christian, one of the gifts God has given to us is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? 1 John 4.4 tells us, Greater is he, the Holy Spirit that is in you, than he, our enemy, Satan, who is in the world. He says you don't have to fear the enemy. You don't have to fear what defense you will give. God will guide you. He's with you. 
And here he has this stark contrast between a believer who has the Holy Spirit in his help and the non-believer who rejects who the Holy Spirit is. This word blasphemy involves the direct and explicit abuse of the divine name. And when it's applied to the Holy Spirit, what it means is we denigrate God in his name by attributing God and his work to our enemy, Satan. You remember what we saw earlier in Luke eleven fifteen? It was there that as Jesus was casting out demons, the religious leaders came and said, hey, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan. You are not the promised Messiah. You are not the Son of God whose power is being manifested in you. You're doing this through the power of the enemy. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, theologians will tell us that the, this sin cannot be committed in the present day. Because they say it was, it was a specific sin with a specific set of circumstances that applied to uh, what I just described, attributing God's Holy Spirit work as not being done through Jesus. Now, if you disagree with that position, the application is the same because it ultimately comes down to denying who Jesus is. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I don't believe you are the Son of God. I don't believe you're who you said you are doing your work through the power of God. And the reason that is an unforgivable sin is because it comes down to rejecting Jesus. And you'll recall that as Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so if you're rejecting Jesus as your Savior, what John 3.36 tells us is, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him, abides on him. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to the last book in the Bible. It's called the book of Revelation. So go all the way to the very last book in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, there's something called the great white throne judgment. And it's called that because of what we see in Revelation 20, verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, I want you to notice that's plural, and books were opened, and another book, singular, was opened. This is the Lamb's book of life. It's where the names of believers are recorded. And it says, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. Because, you see, everybody at this judgment is a non-believer. You can read 2 Corinthians 5.10, and there it says it's appointed for everyone to stand before God in judgment. The context there is speaking of the Christian. We know that because 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. A believer at the point of death, their eternal soul goes straight into the presence of God. And the judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is called the Bema judgment because that's the Greek word there, the Bematos. And that's the reward stand. That's where Christians are judged for how they live their life on the earth to determine their eternal rewards. What we're reading about here is the non-believer who is being judged to decide why they are not getting into heaven. Are you with me? 
So as we continue reading here in Revelation 20, it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Friends, this is what we call hell. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus is the judge here. We know that because John 5 tells us that God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And Jesus is seated on the throne and he's judging the non-believers. It's for those who have rejected Jesus and have said, we are trusting in something other than your finished work on the cross. In this case, they're saying, I'm trusting in my good works. It's why Jesus opens the Lamb's book of life and he says, I'm a just God. Look, your name's not in here. You rejected me. You said you wanted to do it your way, so let's close this book and let's open the books, plural, that have recorded every single thing you've ever done in your life. You talk to people who say, well, you know, I've, I've lived a pretty good life. I've done all these good things. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm reading that here. I see, I see where you did lots of great things. But he says, you know, I also see here there are some sins. Remember those hidden things that are brought to light? He says, well, I see here you did such and such and such and such. And because of that, the Bible tells us, and, and, and we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus says, because you are a sinner, you have a big problem. Because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, what you earn, is not entrance into heaven. The wages of sin is death. Now remember who's standing there. These are the people who have already died. They physically died. It's why we're now talking about, it says, the second death. Because death is defined as separation. We physically die when our earthly soul, our heavenly, eternal soul, is separated from our earthly body. That's the first death. And now the second death is when your eternal soul, if you are a non-believer, is separated from God for all eternity in this place called hell, the lake of fire. And what Jesus says is the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you chose to reject my payment in your place, so guess who gets to pay the penalty? Do you see what's happening? Jesus came and he died on the cross. And he makes that offer to everyone. The scriptures tell us in in the book of Peter that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to know him. When people say, I don't like a God who who doesn't want people in heaven with, he wants everybody. That's his volitional will. His desire is that everybody would be there. But because we have free will, people will reject him. And they'll say, I'm going to do it my way. Or God, I don't like your story, so I'm writing my own story where all roads lead to heaven. And what God says is, You can write your story the way you want. You can vote there's no gravity, but at this moment you are now standing before me and you're about to find out the truth. And what it says is he sends all of those who are there to the lake of fire. Because he says every single one of you have rejected me, so every single one of you get to pay the penalty of death yourself, eternal separation from God. As you read through Romans, Romans 3.24 tells us the only way home to heaven is through Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's a lot of stuff, and here's what it means. 
Jesus died on a cross on a hill called Calvary. He was publicly executed. Why? To be the propitiation. That's a word that means to pay the penalty. It goes beyond just meeting the legal expectation of paying the penalty of death. It also means to satisfy the wrath. It means he restored the relationship. We who were separated from God by our sin, he brought us near. He adopted us as sons and daughters. He welcomed us into the family of God. And it said as he died for us, it was, it was this public demonstration of who he was Romans 3, 25 through 26 goes on to say this was to demonstrate his righteousness, his holiness. As well as it says, in his forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Why? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier. Did you see that? God is holy and just, and he is a God of love. There is no way that any one of us could get to God on our own. And God was faced with what we would call a dilemma or a paradox where you say, how do these two equally important truths come together where God says, no sin can come into my presence. And because no man or woman has ever lived a perfect life, they can't get to me by how they live their life. And what Jesus did was he came and gave his life. The God man who never sinned, who did not owe the penalty, died for you and me. And he says, I have this gift that I offer to you, but it's only good if you will receive it, if you will take it. So the question this morning is, have you ever received the gift that God has given of eternal life? Have you ever recognized that you are a sinner? We all are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And as you think of your life and the way you've lived it, You and I are guilty, and we owe a penalty of death. And the Bible says there is a day coming where there will be judgment. The believer is not at the great white throne judgment because Jesus paid the penalty. We are judged for how we lived our lives to determine rewards, not whether we get to walk into the gates of heaven. The scriptures tell us that in heaven, Satan will come before God, and he he accuses the brethren. He's the prosecuting attorney. He goes before God and he says, hey, you read in the book of Job, God says, where have you been? Well, I've been walking around the earth and I've been looking. He says, well, have you considered my servant Job, right? Well, God says the same thing when it comes to us. Satan comes before us and he says, hey, there's this guy down there in San Antonio who's a pastor named Roger Poupart. And he's a pastor. And, you know, he's a sinner. And he begins to list off the sins. Now, because we're running out of time, I can't, I can't do that for you here this morning. But what he says is, here's what this guy's done. And he's a pastor. And, and what the scriptures tell us is we have an advocate, which literally means an attorney named Jesus Christ. And Jesus stands up as the defense attorney. And as Jesus stands before uh, this, this courtroom setting, what he says is, yeah, Roger did that. He's guilty. And I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's fire, fire this guy. Give me a different attorney. Somebody who's going to hide what I did. Somebody who's going to get a legal technicality to throw. Jesus doesn't do that. He says he did every one of those things and then some. Here it is. And he says he's guilty. He owes that penalty of death. No question. But then what Jesus does is he presents his hands. And he says, you see these nail scars? I died for him. 
You see this spear that was thrust into my side? I died for Roger. I paid the penalty of death he owes. He's guilty, but the account has been propitiated. It's been paid in full. It's closed. And that's why he gets to come into heaven. End of discussion. Satan, get out of my face. And you have a choice, friends. Will you try to live your life in a way where you're saying, I'm good enough to get to God by what I did? What the Bible clearly tells you is you will not get there that way. You owe a penalty of death. And the way that God dealt with it is he went to the cross and he died for us. It's what we remember and celebrate now as we come to the communion table. As we're coming to this communion table, what it reminds us of is how we were guilty and we owed a penalty. We owe a penalty called death. And rather than hide our sins, Jesus died for our sins. He willingly went to the cross. And he said, I will give my life in your place. I will die to wash away the sins that you and I owed. Remember, Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. There had to be a perfect and permanent sacrifice made, which is who Jesus Christ was. And so as we come to this table today, if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you've been trusting in something else like who you are and how good you are, friends, that is a dead-end road. If you think all roads lead to heaven, they don't. There's only one way home to heaven, and that's through what Jesus Christ did, as he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted his gift, you can do so this morning. In a moment, as the elements are passed, there's a piece of bread that represents his body. There's a cup representing his blood. And if you're ready to receive his gift and you've never done so before, say to God as the elements are coming by, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I owe this penalty. And today I accept your death in my place and take the elements. Say, thank you for dying for me. I'm receiving you as my Savior today. And for the rest of us who have, who have received him in the past, there are sins we still commit. And what God says to us is we need to confess those sins, not because we need to be saved again, but so that we can keep the account clear, so we can come with clean hands and hearts to this table. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us if we, confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as the elements are passed... And you, if you're a believer in Christ, use this time to confess your sins. If you're one who's never received him and you're ready to do so, take the elements as well and thank God for his gift. I want you to hold the bread and the cup, and we'll take them together in a moment. Will you serve us, please? Jesus Christ gave his life so that we might have the gift of eternal life eated in remembrance of him. As Hebrews told us, there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And it's why Jesus came. It's why he took on flesh and blood. It's why he willingly went to the cross. And you'll recall that as he was going to be baptized, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The other sacrifices and offerings never removed the penalty of sin. They only kept the account current. They, they just paid the minimum payment, but they could not remove the penalty that was owed. Only Jesus could do that. 
Jesus was our propitiation, the one who satisfied not only the legal cost, but removed the wrath and had us adopted as sons and daughters through his death and resurrection, the blood of Jesus, drinking in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we pray. Lord God, thank you for your gift of new life. Thank you for inviting us as imperfect people into your family. Thank you for making us a part of your family through the gift of your life, through you, Jesus, who died for us. Father, as those who belong to you, as those who represent you, as we leave and we go into a world that doesn't like you, that doesn't like the story as it's told, who wants to cut out the foundational parts like what we've talked about today, Would we be those who represent you well, who speak the truth, who share the whole story, who tell who you are and what you did? Thank you, God, for the gift of life. Thank you for giving us the privilege of being a part of sharing the story of how others might come to receive you as well. May we be found to be faithful. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.